Why aren't we observing the days of undiseased air or the days of non-poisonous food or the days of no bacteria? Well, probably because God realized it would be very, very difficult indeed for us to identify bacteria or to avoid our ingestion of our little bit of daily poison in the polluted environment in which we live. And so God chose many, many millennia ago a very simple little substance that abounds throughout all of the ecosphere in which we live. This room is filled with it. It's floating about in the air outside. It is everywhere present on this earth. It floats about in tiny little one-celled plant-like life called yeast spores. And as it lands on perhaps dough that is left in a windowsill somewhere, uh, it will gradually begin to change in its form. As it is subjected to heat, it will change still further, and something called leavening will take place in the dough that is baked into bread. Now, a yeast cell is nothing but a little fungus. You've heard the little joke, there's a fungus among us. Well, there is, and there probably are fung- fungi n- named yeast spores on the tip of your nose or your ear or falling on your hair or on your hands right now. You could actually take a little plate, as they oftentimes will do, in a high school laboratory and uh, smear it across your nose and put it underneath the microscope and enlarge it about 10,000 times, you'd be absolutely amazed at the little creatures running about that are actually on your skin at any one given time, just dumbfounding. But if you were to take a little bit of the moisture from your eye or your ear or your nostrils, it would be trebly dumbfounding. I had the disgusting experience of going, my wife is shaking her head, please don't. Uh, I can't help but I got started. you know, to go to the dentist, they, they try to keep your, your oral hygiene up, and I go about six times a year. I'm scheduled to go and uh, keep my teeth in pretty good shape and clean, and everything's going just great. And they keep congratulating me on the condition of my mouth. Well, it wasn't that way when I got started a few years ago. When I went to the dentist, I was in bad shape. Well, they take this little metal thing, and they dig way down to the root of your tooth and then tap it on this little plate I'm talking about, put a drop of water with it, put it under the microscope, enlarge it 10,000 times, and stick it on a video right there in the dental office, you're sitting in the chair, and you look, and you think you're looking at the Los Angeles interchange at rush hour. There are more little things running back and forth, doing backstrokes, little funny-looking globular things with tails on them, little circular things. Oh, those are bad. Those are spirochetes. What? What are those? Spirochetes. We don't want those in there. I said, I don't want any of them in there. She says, don't worry. Most of them are helpful. It's not bad. That, those rods that you see wiggling around, I said, what? What are those? It looked like chaff. It looked like uh, someone had swept the floor of a bunch of old bamboo shoots. But they're all in motion. Those things were alive, and they were lining up. And she said, those are the things that form plaque. You see the way they line up and attach to each other? Well, they gradually form, then this little animal, I guess, moves on, and its shell forms or something. She's explaining all of this stuff, and I'm saying, ghastly, this is going on inside my mouth. And then I began to realize it really is. They told me when I was a kid, safer to kiss your dog. No, I'm just kidding. But I really, from then on, I don't think uh, my wife only gets a peck on the cheek. I just go up, mm, hi, honey. I'm just kidding, of course. But it is kind of kind of ghastly when you look at it. But we're unaware of disease germs. Now, right now, there's something going around, and I know because I've got it. And I think I know who I got it from. I think I got it from a member of my own family. But there wasn't a thing in the world I could do about it. I called to a friend out in L.A. the other day. Well, I'm sorry, but uh, this friend was out with the flu. All over the United States, when these huge, big frontal systems come, believe it or not, when temperatures and humidity change and when weather patterns change, you all know that Asian flu is not necessarily transmitted from one person to another person sneezing in a crowded room. Otherwise, it would take 500 years to get around the world. It'll come around the world in a month. And countless quadrillions of billions of bacteria are born before weather fronts. Now, at this time of the year, a lot of people suffer in East Texas because of spring and all these little spores, the pollen from ragweed, every kind of wildflower, the trees, the pines that put the yellow stuff on your automobile when you leave it outside, and it is just filling the air. Many people suffer from hay fever. I've caught a terrible kind of a lung infection, a cold. It's gone up into my nose, so I'm going to be careful to get around people. I've got a lot of halls, um, little cough drops here with me. 
I came armed with two of those, and I chew them every now and then, got handkerchiefs in my pocket, and I'm standing up here absolutely miserable because of a lot of little bacteria that are in there just going away, and there are other little bacteria that are fighting them, that are they're now waging war against them. And, of course, you know who I'm rooting for. Well, when these little one-celled fungi, or a little fungus, lands on bread, it begins to change, uh, to act on that substance to cause what is called fermentation. All plant life spoils or ferments, but it has aids, it has helpers to do that. It doesn't just do it on its own. There are bacteria that are busily causing it to break down, or yeast spores, or various other fungi that we call molds, that are actually breaking it down. Now, when they do that, they're changing the sugars in all natural substances, including grass that you mow from your yard, or dough that you will put in a pan, into alcohol. And as these yeast cells grow, you can actually watch them, they begin to bud. They look just like cauliflower. They just blossom and they just bud. They just keep budding until a whole colony of them, like chickweed in your yard. A whole colony of it will grow and you pull it up and all the grass has been killed from underneath it because it will expand like that. And so it is with these yeast cells. They produce an enzyme, enzyme I'm sorry, which causes fermentation, breaking down the starch and the sugar in solution. And as they do this, they attack the starch in the flour, changing it to sugar. Sugar is changed to alcohol and to carbon dioxide gas. When you subject it to heat, of course, then all the alcohol is cooked out, the bubbles form because of the carbon dioxide, and it's all very airy and light, and it's very pleasant to eat, like angel food cake or very good fluffy bread. Nothing wrong with that. When it's cooked, the alcohol evaporates, the yeast plants are destroyed at a certain temperature, and the nice, light, airy bread is left. God used yeast leavening, leavening agents, as an example of something that is very, very evil in man in the Word of God, in the Bible. I want to turn to a couple of three examples of that. First of all, in Matthew 13, verse 33, where leavening is actually used as in a good sense. Now, Bullinger doesn't agree with that, but I think you will see that God is not saying the leavening is evil. He's merely using an analogy in the 13th chapter of Matthew involving the kingdom of God and the fact of the gradual growth and the spreading, in a sense almost insidiously, and that is used elsewhere in these parables in this chapter, to give us a little bit of a view of how the word of the kingdom of God spreads. Another parable he spoke unto them, verse 33, Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. Now, obviously, she is not trying to pollute the meal. She's trying to leaven it so it will be far more palatable for her husband and her family when she cooks it. Till the whole was leavened. And that's all he says about it. So he's merely using the analogy of the example of how rapidly yeast or leavening will spread until the whole is leavened, so that even though at the present time there are very few who are truly called of God, it is almost like an insidious underground movement. It is not the vast, public, acknowledged, recognized church organizations of this world who represent the kingdom of God. That would be all the other meal. That would be all the other grains of the whole great big batch of bread. But the few little yeast spores that are beginning to spread to mushroom and to grow until finally they will overwhelm and absorb and completely dominate the entirety of the rest of the batter are the people of God who eventually, at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ, are going to reign and rule over all this earth for 1,000 years and from then on forever and ever. A few chapters later, in Matthew 16 and verse 6, he uses the analogy in an evil sense. Let's take a look at that. We've seen this year by year, and I think I come to understand it a little more every single year, especially this year. In the 16th chapter and the 6th verse, he is saying to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they began to reason about bread, completely misunderstanding it. He asked them about the amount of baskets they had taken up. He said in verse 11, How is it you do not understand that I spoke it to you not concerning bread, but that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them to beware not of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. But wait, didn't Jesus say that the Pharisees sat in Moses' seat, and whatsoever they bid you do, that do? But do not according to their works. Let's take a look at that in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. 
and how he went on to expound what he really meant, making a difference between their teachings so far as they stuck to the laws of Moses and the additional teachings that they saddled upon human beings, making them absolutely miserable. Chapter 23, verse 1, we will find out a little bit about the doctrine and why he calls it leaven. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, the days of unleavened bread, the feast of tabernacles, the weekly Sabbath, tithing, the laws of Moses, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works. Now, in other words, the form of their doctrine was all right. But the substance, the practice, the customs that they enjoined upon other people, their whole way of life in view of that formalized doctrine was wrong. Do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not. I want to pause to tell you about a very tragic story. I know of one such. I know of many others by mail and by word of mouth. So I'll merely refer to the one that I know of. Years and years ago, there was a young boy that came home from lunch and told his mother he had a terrible stomachache. They began to question him about what he had eaten. They found that it was during, I think, the time of the parade out in Pasadena, and a lot of times people will get their popcorn and candy bars, and thousands of them are in the stands, and apparently this boy had been underneath the stands and some of these things had fallen down, and he picked up some candy somewhere and eaten it. So after questioning him about what he had eaten, his parents did the logical thing that all the church was taught to do during that day. Because, you see, they'd heard from the pulpit time and again, doctors are butchers, and hospitals are nothing more than slaughterhouses. They'd heard it and heard it and heard it. And the staff with a snake winding around it, and the oath of Hippocrates, and all the rest of them, about the fact that the Greek word for pharmakos or pharmacon has to do with sorcery, and that this is the doctrine of Beelzebub, the god of flies, until people were terrified of doctors and hospitals, terrified of going to get the aid of medical science with even the simplest problems that we human beings suffer. Because, you see, there was an unspoken, unwritten law among the congregations that if the word got out that you, as a member of the church, were not being healed of some illness. Everyone talked behind their hand, I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what is the secret sin. I wonder what's wrong with their lives. I wonder why they lack the faith. Of course, that's comfortable when all is going well with you. When your family is well and you're not sick and your children are safe, no one's in the hospital, no one is injured, no compound fractures, no terrible disease, no lumps in mother's breast, no cancer anywhere in the family. Then you can be comfortable, you can sit around and wonder, what's wrong with other people? So the people in the church had a terrible guilt complex. They didn't want to be judged. And the concept of saying, I'm going to take my child to the doctor and letting the other brethren of the congregation know about it, oh, that was excruciating. You couldn't do that. So, of course, in good faith, they called the minister. The minister came. They knelt by the bedside where the boy was now in agony, doubled over with a terrible, painful stomach and anointed him and asked God to heal him. Later that evening, he died of peritonitis, of a burst appendix, which could easily have been taken from that boy's body in the simplest little operation that is practically an intern's practice surgery, one of the simplest surgeries known to man. I happen to know that case because that was my oldest son's best friend way back in about the first or second grade. We have pictures of them together in one of the little school plays. But that boy died, as did many others in the church, formerly called the Radio Church of God, then called the Worldwide Church of God. In the last few months, an edict has been issued by the human leader of that church who calls himself an apostle which has moved them doctrinally almost to the position that we in the Church of God International have occupied vis-a-vis -vis healing and whether or not you ought to do for yourself what you can do for many, many years. They have almost embraced the totality of the doctrinal statement in the Systematic Theology Project. 
And, of course, some of their reasoning is a little strange because they're talking about the stripes of Christ. I won't go into all of that. But at least I do rejoice in part, in part, although I begin to wonder what some of the people are going to say about it. Because, you see, the ultra-right-wingers, if I may call them that, the people who are comfortable, who haven't had a child die of a ruptured appendix, who haven't lost loved ones in agony unnecessarily from a, a, a disease where a simple operation could have saved their lives, they are still there, alive and well, content to sit and to judge and to point the finger at other people who are not quite so fortunate, who aren't in quite such good health. But at least I rejoice in the sense that a yoke of bondage, a great heavy burden, is partially being removed from the backs of some of God's people. Look at what Jesus said. Do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and they lay them on men's shoulders. This is part of the leaven of the Pharisees. It is spiritual leavening, and it is sin. It's a double standard. Now, years ago, when Roderick C. Meredith lay on his back under total anesthesia with the entire orb of the eye on his cheek, requiring delicate eye surgery, the church knew nothing about it. Decades ago, when my father would have to have the vaccinations, or when my father was swallowing two or six or nine uh, of the uh, Alka-Seltzer tablets about every nine or twelve or fifteen hours trying to knock a cold, or if there were other substances that he received, which he did. The church knew nothing of it. There were people who were judging one another because of the use of white sugar. White sugar is not a sin. Oh, if you raised a rat on a steady diet of white sugar, it's possible after the rat got to be the equivalent of our 80th birthday, the rat might get cancer. But white sugar is not a sin. It's just not as good for you as brown sugar. They've refined away some of the natural elements, but it's not a sin. But there are many people in the church that will tell you it's a sin. And there were actually ministers' wives, and I have actual documentation of this, who when their husband would sit in the living room visiting with the man and the wife, she would walk into the kitchen and look through the cabinets. And some of the women who knew this might be expected when the minister and the family came to visit were scared to death that some foreign substance like a little box of Alka-Seltzer, little sack of white sugar, white flour, crackers that hadn't been carefully investigated where the fine print of the label might have said that uh, some kind of hydrogenated oil or whatever was used in making them, were found in the pantry. And so there was all this judging. People were going so far afield that it was to the point they were practically afraid to eat out in a restaurant, asking questions about everything that, they, that came along for fear that some little contaminant would get into their, their bodies. When my brother, Richard David, was killed, every possible thing medical science could do for him in the week that he lingered in agony was done. There was just nothing further that it could do. He had so many terrible injuries, but everything that that hospital, the UCLA Medical Center, could do for him was done. I know many cases where leading women, quote, unquote, the wives of evangelists and leaders of the church, died several of them from breast cancer. Strangely, those women were allowed to suffer in some cases until the last moments of extremis. And then finally, unable to bear it any further, the husband and the wife would say, all right, let's, let's go, maybe God will forgive us, and reach for at least the painkillers. So in the last days of the poor suffering woman's life, she could at least be removed, have some of that pain removed from her. I'm talking about real, documented, historical, human suffering on a plane you cannot imagine if you haven't been there yourself. I'm talking about a ministry who readily availed themselves of whatever medical science could provide, who routinely took their shots when family after family in this United States were persecuted by the school board, persecuted by the local constabulary, had their children threatened to be taken away from them, and perhaps in some cases this did occur because they looked like a pack of weirdos because they would not subject their children to a simple inoculation in some terrible epidemic sweeping the, the, the community. Or polio shots, 
Polio has practically been annihilated from the United States by a very successful vaccine. A very rare occasion, one out of I don't know how many thousands, gets polio from a shot. Take a look back in the 1930s when Roosevelt started the March of Dimes at the percentage of people in the United States that were getting polio. One of my golfing buddies has a withered leg because he had a siege of it when he was a child. It is practically non-existent anymore because that vaccine has practically obliterated it from the United States. But we have many families who have tried to get a letter. We have a letter, a form letter, that allows people, for conscience sake, if they decide, no, I don't want to do that, I don't want my children to have that vaccine, I don't want them protected from this disease that's going to sweep through here, I, I, I don't want to protect them against smallpox, I don't want to protect them against polio or whatever, then they're allowed to have a letter that acknowledges that they, but it puts the responsibility on them. It does not take the church and stick the church out here looking ludicrous like a group of cultists and like some kind of an extremist right-wing organization that dictates to its people what they shall do. It allows the individual to make up his or her mind and to be responsible for their decision. When I look at this scripture, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne. It cannot help but remind me that at the very time my father, in 1977, was in the hospital room where I went beside his bed, the doctors were all there, he was rushed in an ambulance to the clinic, he was taken there several times, they moved all the clinical material inside of his bedroom. Oxygen, his table had at least 18 to 20 separate pharmaceuticals all arrayed in neat rows. I sat right by my father, my arm around his shoulder, helped put the glass and the little bent straw to his trembling lips as he would gulp down about 20 pills three times a day. Two different doctors in attendance, nurses 24 hours a day for literally years, not just months. And at the very same time my father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, was availing himself of everything medical science could provide. If he had needed an operation, he would have had one. What he needed was careful control of his blood because of a damaged liver. What he needed was careful control of his heart because of a damaged heart. What he needed was the ingestion of all sorts of medicines for those purposes. And the idea that they were, quote, natural is utter nonsense. Most of them were petrochemicals and were based upon the same kinds of medicines that a doctor would prescribe for you, including the antibiotics with the expected side effects. But the church, during those very times, by the thousands, was under the impression that they should not go to a hospital. There were people out there receiving letters to keep their children from getting a vaccination at the very same time. I'm sorry, but I believe we ought to do exactly as we say and say as we do. And I believe that if I take an Alka-Seltzer because I'm trying to fight off a sore throat, that the people of God should either, you know, judge me if that's what they wish to do and then not take them because they feel more righteous or whatever, but I'm not going to conceal it. I'm not going to say, you should never take an Alka-Seltzer. Time out. Run behind the curtain and take an Alka-Seltzer. That doesn't make sense to me. It says here, they say and they do not. Now, notice in verse 5, or the re remainder of verse 4, I didn't finish, they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. For all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their flactories, a kind of a border on the garments and actually a, a, a little thing that they wore like a slate on their chest that had their deeds written upon it, and enlarge the borders of their garments, and love the uppermost rooms at feasts, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, which is like Lord or Teacher, Teacher. Have you ever seen that among any churchmen? I have a little delayed action in my Sony at home. I told about before, a little electronic beam, you know, and the picture will come on just about a second and a half before the voice comes through. And I'm sitting there clicking around, and unfortunately the cable company to which we subscribe has both this uh, cable, whatever it's called, uh, religious network, CBN, and then one other where some of these people are. And every now and then I will see some of them. Well, there's this one fellow who's running for president, 
And he has a black man. I've never heard this black man speak once that I know of, but I'll see his face once in a while and just keep clicking because I know who those people are, so I won't listen to them. But every now and then I'll look, and this little fellow has both eyes absolutely shut, and his face just screwed up into a whole prune-like, twisted series of wrinkles. He's going like this. You know, and his ears are out, his eyes are closed. I can see his lips moving. I'll click it off real quickly, and I realize he's praying. He's praying. Now, I think about the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, go into your closet and pray in secret. And your Father in heaven, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. And I think of Jesus when he said, They love to stand in the corners of the street and make long prayers. They have their reward. Now, when this gentleman does that, he is getting a thrill. He's thrilled. That's it. That's all he gets. That's his reward. There's no prayer to be answered. But you know, it's one thing if I were to stand up here, now I don't know how many are here today, maybe 120, and I could actually, in a crowd, if I were at your level, be seen of only a few of you. If you'd all gather around, I could just screw up my face, close my eyes real tightly, begin to pray. I could be seen by a whole crowd. In a great big stadium, I could be seen, especially with those with binoculars in the far rows, by 100,000 people. But what about when they put a great big camera on me and put it on satellite, and beam it down into 10 million homes. Now that is being seen of men, isn't it? Praying, you talk about public, that is the most public prayer in the history of a prayer. That man is being seen by more people than ever saw Jesus Christ and the apostles pray all put together in one instant. And he's got to be enjoying it. It's got to be fun, because they do it so often. Now, people sometimes will ask me, why don't you pray on your program? Just turn to the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sorry. Jesus says, don't do that. So I don't do it. Is that all right, if I don't do it? They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the markets, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. I'll tell you, brethren, I thank God that the hallmark of the Church of God International is the exact opposite of the leaven of the Pharisees. When a person has been such a part of an hierarchical structure, such a dyed-in-the-wool, tried-and-true loyalist, so conscious of where everybody stacks up in terms of rank and authority, when someone has been in the very uh, innermost corridors where the trappings of power and the use of political power to cow and to intimidate other people was a daily way of life. When you see the pomp and the so-called dignity, the arrogance, if you will, of vain, egocentric ministers who have got everything in complete reverse, it is just absolutely despicable and it is contemptible to you, and so you want to get as far away from it as you possibly can. When I look into the Bible and I see what was the doctrine, the practice, the custom of the Pharisees? Why did Jesus Christ say, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees? And in Mark, the eighth chapter, another uh, account of the very same thing, he said, Beware of the leaven of Herod. What was the leaven of Herod? Herod was a politician. Herod was a lesser king under the Romans. So here was the leaven of corrupt politicians, of vanity. Remember that I think it's in the eighth proverb, about the thirteenth verse, isn't it? I forget the exact verse. I'll just take a quick look in case I've forgotten that. Yes, it is. The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, colon. And then the rest of the thought is this. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate, says God. And what is leaven? It is vanity and pride. It is that which puffs up, which inflates, which causes one human being to look down on another human being, to feel superior instead of acknowledge that very likely you are inferior instead. It is the exact opposite of humility. God says he hates pride. Do you ever see pride when you watch Sunday morning television? Do you ever see people who take up a kind of a sassy, almost a snotty tone, who get very Pentecostal and start just rattling away about, we ought to get these preachers off the golf course and into their prayer closets? 
and everybody starts to just cheer, and then they'll just get kind of sassy in the way that they will attack people. I've seen that from the time of my boyhood, that there's a particular spirit of arrogance, of pomposity, of spiritual pride. That is not the sincere tone of someone who is reaching out to a sinner who has love and compassion, who says, oh, these poor people are lost in sin. They are captured by sin. They're everywhere surrounded by it. They're being overwhelmed by it. We've got to rescue them, as James said, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh, of some making a difference, saving them, trying to pull them out of and rescue them from the way of their own lives that is despoiling them and is going to ruin them spiritually and send them into a lake of fire. There is a different approach. The one is gentle, it is meek, it is humble, it is the attitude and the spirit of a servant who acknowledges their own weakness, and even, as Paul did, says, O wretched man that I am. Where is Paul when it comes to bragging? Even in the 11th chapter and the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians, he said, All right, I'll speak as a fool. You want to boast? Then I'll boast for a minute. But he uses that great disclaimer saying, This is all foolishness, it's all nonsense. There Hebrews, so am I. And he goes on and on. But the very beautiful disclaimer shows that the whole thing is an exercise in futility. And that the Apostle Paul says, all of this boasting of the comparison of race and the pride of our family background, the pride of our religion, is vanity. It's nonsense. And Paul absolutely spoke against it. I want to go to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, which is the other example about leaven. But this is something which I think Mr. Dart very strongly touched upon a week or so ago that needs to be elaborated upon a little further. Let's read up to it because there's some very interesting things in the fourth chapter, and I'm going to skim along in 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. The Apostle Paul, remember, with the church in Corinth, was facing a crisis of leadership. They said, I am of Paul, I'm of Kephas, I'm of Paulus, or I'm of Christ. And Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you, save Crispus and Gaius, and so, I don't remember any others, and so on. And he said, don't judge things before the time. In verse 5, they were all judging each other. In verse 6, the latter part, he said that, well, I'll read it. He said, those things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes. I'm reading the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, verse 6, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written. Actually, the original should read that you go not beyond that which is written that no one of you be puffed up against another. Now, what is being puffed up against one another except arrogance and pride? It's the vanity of comparison of saying, I'm better than so-and-so because I don't do what she does, or I don't think the way he does, or I don't handle my business the way he does, or I don't dress the way he does, or I don't look the way he does. You're puffed up one against another. That's party spirit, comparisons, judging. Who makes you to differ from one another? And what do you have that you didn't receive? That's a good question, isn't it? What have I got that I didn't receive? Nothing. Everything I have, I received. A gift. Life itself. Now, if you did, not re if you did receive it, why do you glory? Puffed up again. That's, that's vanity. Look at me. I am somebody. Wow. I've seen some contrasts. Even back in high school, I see the same thing where I live. I remember a couple of, of completely disparate cases. One, I can think of a girl that I remember from my youth, one of the vainest creatures I ever knew. She lived in a hall of mirrors. Every pose was with her mind completely twisted in and upon herself. She was insufferable. You couldn't stand her. She was beautiful. All the boys were just crazy about this girl. She was just absolutely everything from the homecoming queen to the cheerleader and just little Miss America. And she knew it. And therefore, she was insufferable. Another girl I remember, beautiful girl, just a gorgeous young girl, didn't seem to know it. Didn't have the faintest idea she was pretty. She would talk with anyone. She was on your level. You could get to know her just like that. Sweet, wholesome, tremendous. Even if she'd been smart enough, the other girl, the vain one, to know that the psychology is far better on the part of the second girl. Get rid of the vanity. Be thankful, because you're not responsible for the way the flesh is stretched over the bones on your face. Your parents did that. You didn't have a thing to do with it. Are you ungainly, misshapen, bad teeth? Well, you might be a beautiful person inside. You might have a lovely character. Are you beautiful in your exterior? What's inside? 
God looks on the heart, not on the exterior. You can't do anything at all about heredity and what your parents bequeathed to you in terms of how you look. Well, we can do something about the superficial aspects, of course, to some degree, but you know what I mean by that. Your eyes, the shape of your face, your nose, its length, the way it is on your way it's hinged and put on your face there. You can't do anything about that. So why do people grow up being vain about the way they look? And other people grow up with terrible complexes of inferiority because they don't think they are pretty. And they think they're ugly. And it just ruins their character because other people judge, which should not be. If you have it, you received it. He said, now you are full. Now you are rich. He's just putting them down, chiding them. You have rejoiced as kings without us. And I wish to God you did reign, that we also might reign with you. And he said, I think that God has set forth, forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. I never could, and I don't want to belabor that, agree that an individual who is a servant of Jesus Christ of Nazareth should receive the great accolades and all of the pomp and the ceremony and the aplomb and the salutations and the awards and the badges and pictures and the banquets and the great receptions of dictators, of premiers and kings and presidents of nations all over this world. I recall what some of the servants of God received at the hands of the leaders of this world. He said, No, we're made a spectacle unto the world and the angels and the men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. And then he talked about his way of life. At the present hour they were hungry and thirsty and were naked and buffeted and had no certain dwelling place. He said in verse 13, Being defamed, we entreat. They didn't sue. They didn't go to the courts. They didn't say, we will prevail with the might of Herod's politics. They didn't have Herodian vanity, and they did not have Pharisaical vanity. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. A different, different bracket, a different way in which the Apostle Paul moved and lived than the way some of God's people have been skillfully educated and cultured to believe is the way an apostle is to live. Different, isn't it? Shocking, isn't it? But this is the Bible, the Word of God. Not what some people have been through mass psychology and constant repetitiveness over 40 years taught to expect. There are people who begin to believe they ought to take off their jacket like Sir Walter Raleigh and put it down in the mud lest an apostle get his feet dirty. Nonsense! A part of God's church is corrupted with that insidious leaven. It has leavened the whole lump. It is so puffed up and so grotesque it looks like a World War II barrage balloon. There it is, swollen, egotistical, toadish in its incredible vanity. But Paul, he said he was like the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons I warn you. And he went on to say, that he was going to have to straighten things out when he got there. Verse 18, now some are puffed up, says it over and over again, vanity, and that is the pride with the leaven that had inflicted this church, as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, not in posturing, but in power. What will you? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? Going right on, men put the chapters. It is reported commonly there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife, and ye are puffed up. Wait a minute. Isn't that a, a, a terrible contradiction? Now, what if we in this congregation knew that seated right here with us today was a man and his stepmother who were living together openly, in an incestuous relationship. Wouldn't you feel like kind of cringing? Wouldn't you feel... Well, you, I'd probably be taking it on the chin. Well, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen in the first place. But just, just let your mind just wrap around that a little bit for a moment. If you knew about it, and it were in this congregation, what would your, your evaluation of it be? Well, you'd probably begin to blame the minister. But you'd say, how in the world can they allow that? Well, that's terrible. 
You can't allow that to go on openly. I mean, even even clandestinely, you shouldn't allow it to go on. But at least clandestinely, allegedly, you might not know about it. But if you knew about it, you can't allow that to happen without going straight to those people and saying, look, this is a terrible sin. You cannot, you know, you can't even begin to to pretend that you want to enter this congregation and come and fellowship with people. And people would have to make their own decision about that as well. The ministry would not stand up and defame them from the pulpit. I don't believe God says that ought to be done. But surely God says we are to mark, meaning take note of them that cause these divisions and then to individually avoid them. Now, here was a congregation that knew it. It was open. And not only did they tolerate it, but they were vain because of it. How in the world do we figure that out? Well, I'll tell you how it happens. You see, these were Corinthians. They were formerly utterly pagan. All the religions they'd heard about from the time they were little bitty toddlers, their mothers had said to them, now little Aristarchles here, or little Hermes, or whatever his name was, you see, you're named after so-and-so and such-and-such. And there's Juno, and there's Julia, and there's Thor, and there's Zeus, and there's Saturn, and there are all these gods. And they had these hideous, grotesque appetites, and some of them look like half man and half horse. And they've been known to come down and rape women, and they run around chasing each other half clad. Here's Bacchus, the god of grapes and drunkenness and wine, and they have giant orgies. Well, their religious orders all had to do with various uh, orgiastic practices of fabled gods and goddesses of the Greeks and Romans and Babylonians and Egyptians. It all began with the mystery religion of Semiramis and Nimrod long before. And it comes down to us, and its trappings are with us today. Yesterday, I drive by one house out there in Emerald Bay, and somebody had gotten about six dozen of these plastic Easter eggs and thrown them all over the yard. People were in there. You walked into my clubhouse, and here was a big stuffed bunny with a whole bunch of eggs all around it. And I told old Bob Hardy out on the golf course, I said, you know, I noticed you didn't go to church this morning. The biggest crowd you ever saw at that little church right across from where I live. And I said, here we are out in the golf course. I bet all these people think we're a bunch of pagans. And he kind of made a comment. I said, well, it's the day of Ishtar. And I didn't belabor it a little bit. I didn't belabor it. I didn't want to preach any sermons to him, alienate my neighbors. But I got my point across a little bit. And I've told people time and again what those eggs and bunnies are all about. They are symbols of sex, fecundity, rapid reproduction, fertility. And here, yesterday, was supposed to be the day of Ishtar, Ishtar, Ashtaroth. The day of the Nordic goddess of Ostara, going all the way back to ancient pagan Babylon, when God thunders at his people, learn not the way of the heathen. Be ye clean, ye that bear the vessels of the eternal. But these people came out of paganism in Corinth. To Corinthianize meant to prostitute oneself. There was the great temple to Diana. There was the great temple to Asclepios. There were the great temples to Zeus and the other gods. And there in little tempietos and brothels right on the, t on the steps of the temples were all of the temple prostitutes. And a part of the religious rite was to go in under the prostitute, and that was supposed to be concourse with these goddesses. And they went out and went away from an, from an act of, of uh, fornication with a prostitute, feeling religiously uplifted. Because the pagans taught that any appeal to prurient interests, any sating of the physical senses, is good for you. Now, how did they twist it around to where in the Christian church they could actually begin to feel that way? Well, it all comes down to the word love. See, there are people that will take Christ's love and Christ's forgiveness, and they begin to say, well, I just love everybody. I just love everybody. And, and Christ will forgive us. And they hug and they kiss all the time. They can't wait to get their arms around their fellow brethren. And the, I remember way back when I was a little boy, I used to see women doing some of the most disgusting things. I could never figure out how in the world they could put up with it. But elderly ladies would actually walk up to each other in a little old church, had a slight Pentecostal leaning, and just kiss each other a big, wet, juicy smack right on the mouth. And I thought, oh, gag, I don't know if I can handle it. I'm just a little bitty kid watching this, wondering what in the world is going on. But they had a lot of love. And they had read in the Bible about the holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So grab them by the ears, you know, and uh, they walk away with a terrible disease germ or something. But they thought that was a holy kiss. That sounds awful, I know, but I'm trying to make it sound awful on purpose. Because it looked awful, I'll guarantee you. 
I'll tell you one thing. We have a scramble. And I'll never let it happen. But, you know, a scramble, if you don't know what a scramble is, that's where they have five or six people. You all hit the ball, the best ball. All the others pick it up, take their ball to the place. Then they all hit the shot, and then they pick the best ball from there. And they all get out and have fun on a late Friday afternoon during the summer months at Emerald Bay. Well, some of those old ladies, they're pretty frustrated. So when I walk in the morning, I have a one-iron with me. When people say, Ted, what are you doing with that one-iron? I say, it's for rabid skunks, wayward dogs, and, uh, and uh, you know, undependable widows or whatever I'll say. But uh, anyway, Bob Hardy has a solution. I got a different solution. I just run. But Bob Hardy chews tobacco. So after you make, if you make a birdie, those old women want to kiss the guy that makes the birdie. And if you make a birdie, you can see him over there running up and grabbing him by the ears and kissing him one. Doesn't matter whose husband is whose, those old ladies want to kiss you. Old Bob just gets a big old plug of tobacco, keeps it in his mouth. He doesn't get kissed. And I'll guarantee you, he is a level-headed man because the juice is running out of both sides of his mouth same time. So you know he's a level-headed man. Well, I just run. Those old ladies are not going to kiss me. Uh, if, if I make a birdie, I grab the ball and get in my cart in a hurry. What I've done now is just quit playing in the scramble for a while. Uh, but anyway, these people way back in Oregon believe they ought to have the holy kiss. Now, I've actually discovered, and we've talked about this with a couple of people personally, and there's nothing that happened as a result of it. I just know that some of the reasoning is such that even as the perverted doctrine of the uh, people who were afflicting the Thyatiran church, who had allegedly gone to the depths of Satan the devil, had perverted the truth of God to the point they said, let us do evil that good may come. That God is so great and so merciful that the more we sin, the greater is his mercy. And somehow they took love and twisted it around to the point that there wasn't anything really wrong with this, that they had need of each other, she was lonely, he had his needs, and they both just loved one another. And so they took an ugly, hideous sin and just sugar-coated it and called it love, and then became vain and puffed up and filled with vanity and party spirit and politics. And here was a church that even experienced some of the spiritual gifts that some of you wish we had. And yet look at the evil that was extant in that congregation. Incredible. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And then he said that that person ought to be put out of the church, but aren't you glad we do not know who that person was? Skipping ahead to verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? We've always heard that. A bad apple spoils the whole box. And they do, because they rot. And that rot is a fungus. It is a mold. It will begin to grow. And the minute it is there, it actually in the air gives off little tiny uh, microscopic little plants. And it goes, every one that it touches, it will begin in a box of oranges, a box of apples, or any kind of fruit. It will just spoil the entire box. And so Paul said, that glorying, that vanity, would of course do what? Well, let me tell you something peculiar about human nature. If you ever see somebody involved in a sin, usually it's going to be a sex sin, but a sin involving appetite, and it appears to you that they got away with it, there's some little bitty voice way in the back of your mind that says, I wonder if I could get away with it too. It's just there. It's just a little twist of human nature. And Paul knew that if these people tolerated that, pretty soon a lot of others would begin to say the same thing. They'd say, well, he's doing it. Must be all right. We can drift into that practice. What's wrong with going back to my favorite prostitute down there at the temple of Diana? Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out, therefore. Now, what is a purge? You know that you can go buy a purgative in the drugstore. Usually a pretty harsh thing. When you purge something, a purge under Beria in the Soviet Union cost hundreds of thousands of lives. When something is purged, it means really getting it out of there with a crowbar. It's really a pretty tough situation to purge something. When metals are purged by fire, they are, of course, completely melted down so that all the slag and the impurities are burnt off. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven. He is saying that it is a painful process. It's difficult to get rid of leavening. It isn't easy that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. Interesting. Again, we simply say this is a direct contradiction of the Bible itself, unless you were to understand. Purge out the old leaven spiritually. Get rid of sin that has been residual, resident, endemic inside of your lives and hearts. 
even as you now are unleavened physically, practicing the days of unleavened bread. So they were observing the days of unleavened bread, and this was thirty-some years after the ascension of Christ, a Gentile church, the apostle to the Gentiles, teaching Gentile Christians to keep the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. And the vast bulk of countless tens of millions of Americans, of Britons, of Australians, Canadians, peoples in northwestern Europe, of the entire Christian religion all over this globe, keep the day of Ishtar instead, and are utterly ignorant of the meaning of the days of unleavened bread, and would look at you as, you, as if you were a fool to try to explain it to them. But on the other hand, if they tried to explain to you what rabbits and eggs are all about, they'd look a little foolish too, wouldn't they? because they just honestly don't know. Most of them have never bothered to find out, because, you see, you were born into a ready-made world. The world was already there when you came along. My little grandbaby born the other day, here's this world already made for him, armed to its nuclear teeth with enough destruction to annihilate twenty worlds like ours, a world filled with drugs and with crime and endemic disease, of pollution and strontium-90, of the testing of nuclear weapons, of a staggering economy of a nation that is absolutely practically on its knees, the greatest debt-ridden country in the history of the world, owing even more than poverty-ridden Brazil, and my little grandbaby and all the other millions of little grandbabies being born into a ready-made world. Easter is already in place, and whichever school that little boy goes to, there's going to be Easter there, and there's going to be Christmas waiting for him. Santa Claus is coming next year. All the media hype and all the advertisements are going to make sure that the millions of little kids hear about it. And millions of parents next year are going to perpetuate the lie. The kid's only two and a half, three. Santa Claus is coming. Who's that? Little red guy, you know, with a beard. That's Santa Claus, honey. Can you say Santa Claus? John George, you know. Oh, that's so sweet, the way they say Santa Claus, you know. So we, we love the way little babies pronounce things. And we're going to teach them. My little grandbaby does not know there is such a human being in the entirety of the world as some people would refer to as a spick, or nigger, or kike, or chink, or gook. He doesn't know any of those races, but he'll find out, won't he? Now, if his parents could prevent it, he wouldn't find out, I'm sure. But they can't prevent it, that's the whole point because it's out there. It's in society. But there are millions of little black babies being born that don't know about Uncle Charlie and the man, don't know about the fuzz. But they'll be taught because it's a ready-made world. Now, when Israel wandered, think of the analogies. Israel, in forty years, a symbol of testing, was wandering in a wilderness called what? The most appropriately named wilderness in the world. The mountain, meaning mount of that wilderness, is called Sin, A-I, the mountain of sin the mountain of the wilderness of sin, Sinai, they say it, but the, the wilderness was called the wilderness of sin. They wandered for forty years and they ate a kind of a bread. Where did the bread come from? It came down from heaven. Read John 6, where Christ said, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven, and that we are to eat of Jesus Christ, meaning imbibe and ingest his humility, his lack of vanity, his complete love for all humanity, and his totality of the human, of the repentant, not that he'd ever sinned, but the meek and the humble and the lowly spirit of the, the brokenhearted toward God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was like, by analogy, the manna that came down. And that was unleavened bread. It wasn't puffed up. They ate unleavened bread because it was bread God rained down for forty solid years. But they were everywhere surrounded by the wilderness of sin, just as you are everywhere surrounded by yeast spores and by sin. Satan the devil and his billions of cohorts everywhere surround you. Now here today, in this closed environment, we can enjoy looking into the Word of God, refreshing our memories, reading some things, hearing some concepts, letting our mind try to get some new approaches, some new concepts about we human beings and overcoming and our Savior Jesus Christ and what is in store for us if we drink in and eat in of his blood and of his flesh. And if we let it replace the sin, the ego, the vanity, the pomposity, all of the evil practices and appetites of our human nature. But the minute you go back out on that road, the minute you get back into your home, there's that TV set waiting, there's that radio, there's the literature, there are your friends, there is your environment, there is your job waiting, there are the people out there, and it's all around you. 
Now, hopefully, if you enjoy your first loaf of bread, and you ladies will go to the store probably on your way home after sunset or maybe tomorrow, and you'll buy some baking soda, baking powder, and lay in some pastries or some bread. Hope you won't overdo it and get things that are wrong or bad for you, but this is not the church of, of uh, brown bread. So I really don't care. It's up to you. But I am saying that you will no more be putting sin back into your lives tomorrow by eating leavened bread than you put sin out of your lives by throwing out that half can of baking powder a week ago. You didn't get sin out of your life by throwing away some bread and baking powder. It'll never do it. The way to get sin out of your life is to invite Jesus Christ in. And in the measure to which Christ is in your life, he cannot coexist with sin. Christ is very uncomfortable around sin. It breaks his heart. It just absolutely breaks his heart. It defiles. It pollutes. And so God says, those who have trampled underfoot the precious blood of the Son of Man have a terrible thing coming to them. The more Christ is in you, if ye be Christ's, and so on, as God says, then you are secure to his kingdom. But the more you have Jesus Christ in you, the less you will be able to give in to these sins of the flesh and the appetite that are all around us. Purge out, therefore, verse 7, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice, that's judging, that's resentment toward another human being and hatred, and wickedness, any and all form of evil sin, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So let's remember that during the remaining hours, and not only that, but during all of the days of unleavened bread, brethren, I think we have come a long way, and I think the point that Mr. Dart brought in his sermon I mentioned just very, very briefly about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the concept of so-called physical sin as opposed to spiritual sin is very good and something we ought to pay much attention to. There is no such thing as a category of physical sin as versus spiritual sin, and that Christ's body was beaten for your physical sins and his blood was shed for your spiritual sins. You can look into the book of Isaiah and it says otherwise. It says the totality of his back and his body and his blood was given for the sins of the world. Is it possible for you to get a disease and not to have sinned? Read James 5.14 again. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray and anoint him with oil, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And if he has committed sins, if, that means obviously then, if not, right? If he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven. If sins were involved in it. But what about if not? I'm not sure that I deliberately, or even through accident, got this cold. I really don't know what I did. I tried to get a full night's sleep. I tried to ingest vitamin C, I watched my diet, I tried not to go around anybody that was contaminated, but I just couldn't help it, and it got me. Sometimes I think we are afflicted with diseases, sicknesses, and illnesses that are not necessarily our fault. If you're in bouncing, vibrant, good health, and you walk in a room and somebody's coughing his head off with a flu, and you walk out, and two days later you get a fever and come down in bed with the flu, what did you do? Could you help it? I don't think so. So I think sometimes people have misunderstood. As Mr. Dart asked, and I will repeat that, this sin that was afflicting the Corinthian congregation, what was it? Incest. Well, is that spiritual? Well, yes, because it breaks the law against adultery. But what is adultery? Is it a spiritual act? You see, people years ago began to go around wondering about physical sin. And they thought eating a cracker that was made with lard, now that's a physical sin. Nonsense! All sin is spiritual in nature because sin is the breaking of God's Ten Commandments as magnified by all of the teaching of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of those sins of appetite, passion, may afflict you physically, but it's still sin. It's like saying a sin is a sin is a sin. And when we sin, if it afflicts us physically, that's a part of the penalty in addition to the penalty which is always present, which is spiritual, meaning death for all eternity from which there is no resurrection except to a lake of Gehenna fire. 
we need to repent of all sin. I'm so thankful that God has allowed the Church of God International to throw off more and more of the mantle, the cloak, the robe, the broad flactories, and the elongated garments of the Pharisees. Thankful that little by little we are learning a little more about the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's not become proud by saying we don't have it, because we still do have a good bit of it. We just need to be reminded to get rid of all of it and not let the past afflict us with some of the leavening with which many of us coexisted for literally decades right in God's church. I hope you've had a wonderful Days of Unleavened Bread. I personally am almost sorry to see them go because my wife and I always enjoy Narskas. And I normally don't get to eat those because I don't eat pancakes very often. But we make those little bitty old thin crepes that I make, and I get that's my, my time to cook during the Days of Unleavened Bread. We had some just this morning. I love those, so I'm sort of sorry to see the Days of Unleavened Bread go. But I'll probably get back to my cold cereal as of tomorrow morning. Well, we're going to have a very good uh, potluck here, and I'll try not to afflict any of you with my cold, so don't get too close to me, please. And uh, we'll have just a marvelous lunchtime and some good conversation here if uh, the person to give the closing prayer will remember to ask the blessing on the food. Ralph.